Going Linux, episode 387, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at our email address at goinglinks at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Hey, Bill. Hey, Larry. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Hey, listen, uh, that voicemail line, I get bugged every month or so from Google that we haven't used it in a while, and in order to keep maintaining that phone number, I have to send myself a text message. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering, and here's a question for our minions, do we still need the voicemail line? Should I just give that up next time they ask, or do you think there's some value in having it? Well, you know, you can attach a a voicemail to an email, an audio file. Yes, you can. Yeah. So... I would say, I mean, it's probably just easy just to, for them to uh, go ahead and record it and just attach it to an email and then just have another, have a voicemail. So what do you think? Yeah, well, the whole idea behind the voicemail line was to give someone who didn't really know how to do record audio recordings oh, yeah. a way to send us an audio file, but I think our... Audience has become more sophisticated over time. <laughs> well, I said or we less just... lazy, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I said we just uh, keep it on it for next month or so, and if we don't get anything, I say uh, go ahead and drop it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'm interested in feedback from our yeah. listeners, and uh, yeah, if you want the voicemail, send us a voicemail message by using that line, and if you don't. <laughs> Um, just drop us a, lo- a note on email or somewhere and let us know. Okay. So, Larry, right. I hear you You were uh, out uh, moonlighting. What, what did you do? <laughs> well, I got invited by Rocco, also known as Big Daddy Linux, to be on Linux Spotlight. So we've recorded an episode, two hours of me <laughs> talking about... <laughs> Me and the <laughs> podcast and talking about you and talking about our audience. And that should be coming out on March 11th, if I remember correctly. And uh, this is a video podcast that Rocco does. Um, so we'll have the audio as an episode in the future uh, as soon as it's ready to go. So they actually get to see what you look like. So did it go good? Yes, it went very well. He didn't kick me out after half an hour, so I think it was good. <laughs> All right. That sounds cool. I look forward to watching it. Yeah. So we'll have a link when it's available, and we'll have the audio for those people who don't have time to, you know, kick on a browser and watch a video for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into our emails then. <laughs> All right. Let's do that. And we've got quite a few, so it's probably wise that we just move right into them. 
Our first one is actually an audio file that Paul sent to us by email as an attachment, uh, and it's regarding a second internal drive problem that he has. Uh, he His email said, Hello, Bill and Larry. Please find the attached audio file. Thank you for your great podcast. Thanks, Paul. Let's listen to the audio. Hello, Bill, and hello, Larry. My name is Paul. I'm a German living in Ankara, Turkey. I have been using Linux for several years now and consider myself an experienced user. I love Linux Mint and Xubuntu for their simplicity and ease of use, and it is my hobby and my pleasure to introduce friends and colleagues to Linux. In the last days I was setting up a computer with Linux Mint Cinnamon for a local small NGO. It was the first time I set up a computer with encrypted system and with a second hard drive. And that's where the problems began. After setting up Linux, I formatted the second drive with gparted to GPT partition table and with one big partition in ext4. Then I wanted to copy a file on the drive and it did not work. I had no permission to access the drive. The drive was owned by root and root only. So I searched the internet and read about the commands mnt, joan, gmod and all the many options that belong to these. All involved the terminal, which I don't like because even if I would master it, the people I recommend Linux to probably wouldn't. Finally, I stumbled over a small passage in a forum thread where it was mentioned that gparted assigns all internal drives to root and that one should better use Linux Mint's formatting program disks. So I did that, and lo and behold, I had access to the drive. But I discovered soon that only the administration account had access, not the other standard accounts. So there was no way around it. I had to assign all users through users and groups individually to the group users, and then use the terminal to assign the drive to this group through sudo chone users mnt backslash followed by the UUID of the drive. Fortunately, this mounting point mnt backslash is visible in the program disks, so I could just copy it. Once this was done, I discovered that the standard users now could access the drive, but not write or edit files on the drive. So again in the terminal, I set the writes to read, write and edit on the drive for the group users with the command sudo chmod 2775, as I remember, followed by mnt backslash and the UUID. When researching this, I found that there are chmod commands with four and others with three digits, and I have no idea why and what's the difference. But finally, it worked. All users can now access, read, write, and edit files on the second drive. All was good for a while. But then, by playing around with the standard users, I discovered that any user can access any other user's files, including administrator account. Only for reading and copying, not to edit or delete, but still, this is not good in regards to privacy. To change this, every user has to go in the file system, home, and right-click on his user folder to access the properties. In permissions is listed what the owner can do, which is set to create and delete files, and what other members of the same group can do, which is access files, and what anyone else can do. 
the header anyone else is missing, so I had to guess. The rights for anyone else are set to access files as well and has to be changed to none. The administrator cannot do this. Every user has to do this for him or herself. After this experience, I decided to send you my story and I would like to ask. 1. Why is it so difficult and is there an easier way to make a second disk drive accessible with reading and writing permissions to all users of the computer? Is there maybe a program with a graphical interface to set up a second disk drive? This program could even pop up when a new internal drive is detected and offers several options to check. 2. Are these problems with setting up a second disk drive the same in every common Linux distribution, or is this a speciality of Linux Mint Cinnamon? And finally, 3. Is there a way to set the permissions for each user's home folder by the administrator, instead of by the user himself? Thank you very much for listening, and maybe picking up my questions in your great podcast. You do a wonderful job in keeping informed, educate, and entertained Linux lovers all at the same time. This was Paul from Ankara checking out. Well, thanks, Paul, for the uh, for the voicemail. Uh, I can see why you didn't try to type all that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Bill, this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It does. Um... I had a very similar problem. It wasn't internal, it was a, a USB drive. And I found that uh, for some reason I couldn't access the drive, even though I went into um, Gparted and uh, partitioned it out. And then I plugged it back in, it still wouldn't let me. So finally um, I uh, plugged into the elementary OS just to kind of see uh, if it would read it, and um, it popped up, and I was able to uh, right-click on the um, the drive and say open uh, as administrator, and then I had full access. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think it's uh, kind of maybe an Ubuntu thing. What I did is I went in and adjusted the permissions uh, when I was in the uh, administrator account, and said it where I could read, write, and everything. And since that time, it's worked. So, but he had an encrypted drive. So, yes, he had an encrypted drive, and he was also p- protecting people's data from other people sharing that drive. So, there was that complication. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what the answer would be to this one uh, because you know it was an encrypted drive. Mine wasn't, but uh, I, I do know that uh, what I found kind of. Uh, intriguing about what he said is that the administrator of the system couldn't adjust the permissions. Right. I've never um, quite understood uh, why an administrator the administrator couldn't do it. You got any thoughts on it? Because I'm kind of at a loss. I mean, I know what I had to do, but with the encrypted, I don't know if it's just um, uh, something different or it's set up permissions different, but I was always able to go in once I was logged in as administrator and uh, able to uh, adjust the permissions on the drive. I don't know. <laughs> I'm at a loss on that one. Um, you got any ideas? 
Yeah, I'm not sure why the administrator wasn't able to change the permissions. Um, I would just double check that you actually were in as administrator, that you either, either if you were on the command line, that you typed sudo before the commands uh, and put your password in, or if you were using a graphical tool at that point, that you were running it as sudo. And as Bill had mentioned, if you right-click on a file or right-click on a folder, at least in Mate, and I think in GNOME as well. I don't know in Cinnamon. Each of these is controlled by the file manager, and so, yeah. you know the file manager in Mint is a little different. But when you right-click, it gives you the option to run as administrator. Uh, and regardless of whether that's a program, a file, a, a folder, then... It it should work just fine, uh, and you should actually be administrator at that point. And it should let you even – well, maybe because it's encrypted, it's not letting you do that. But And maybe if you had changed the permissions before changing the ownership. You know, you mentioned, Paul, that the everyone else setting was – not present, and you had to actually set that to none. Perhaps if you had done that before changing the ownership, it would have uh, preserved that setting, and then everything would have worked, um, separating the access of one person's data from another. So next time, hopefully there is no next time, but next time you might want to check that. Um, yeah. One thing that I have noticed is that Problems regarding access to files are made even worse within Linux when the drive is formatted NTFS, which is a Windows file format that you can make compatible within Mac or Linux. And typically modern Linux systems have that compatibility already enabled, so you don't typically have to do anything to make that happen. But permissions on... NTFS files are oftentimes kind of funky, especially around the mount options and so on. So, you know, that's just an observation. I've had some problems with external drives that I have partitioned NTFS just to make it more compatible across platforms and have run into very similar problems and had to jump through the same sort of hoops as you have had to jump through. So in answer to some of your questions, Paul, I, I can't say why it's this difficult. I don't know. It just is. Uh, is it this difficult across all different versions of Linux? Yes. Uh, it's it's a file permissions issue and incompatibility between, in my case, incompatibility between the Windows file format and, and the Linux file formats. Uh, I think part of the reason it might be that you have to go through these hopes is because Linux is more secure than Windows, which kind of gives you more administrator kind of permissions by default. I mean, Windows over the years has gotten a little more sensitive to this and has locked down a few more things. So uh, it is not quite as bad at opening up permissions as it has been in the past, but um, Linux is more secure overall just by virtue of its design. And as a result, sometimes along with additional security comes the need for um, a little additional work to open things up when you're trying to 
make things more visible or more accessible, which is what you're doing in the case of permissions and mount options and those sorts of things. It sounds to me, Paul, like you've uh, become more of an expert than you wanted to be at the command line <laughs> to do these kinds of things. And one of your questions was, are there graphical tools for doing this? I don't remember what the tool is in Mint. I suspect that Disks is installed by default. It shows up as Disks in the menus, at least in Ubuntu Mate. And it's actually a GNOME tool. So it's GNOME-Disks if you're looking for it in the repositories. Uh, and when you right-click on um, uh, a hard drive, I think one of the options is to go to disks or at the very least, I, I can't say that's true for every Linux distribution. So let's just say if, you, if you've installed disks and you pick it from the menu, you should be able to choose which disk you're looking at, in your case, an, ex, uh, uh, an internal drive. And then once you have that, on the screen, you can do things like mount, unmount, change mount options, change permissions, uh, change ownership, things like that. So there's that graphical tool. And there's another graphical tool that uh, is oftentimes provided by Linux distributions at install time, but sometimes you have to install it additionally afterwards. And that is the tool that Bill just mentioned, which is gparted. And it works a little bit differently than the GNOME Disks um, program, but its function is basically the same. It allows you to change ownership, change mount points, change permissions on files and or directories, and gives you the ability to reformat if you want and change the format of the entire disk. And lots of lots of different options there, all within the graphical environment. So there are other tools out there, but those are the two that... Uh, I've had experience with and have used uh, and different Linux distributions, especially Red Hat or RPM-based distributions may use different tools. I remember OpenSUSE had some some tools that they used that were, uh, I don't know whether they were specific to OpenSUSE or whether they were uh, Red Hat tools, but they were different than Gparted and GNOME disks. But you could, of course, install either of those on OpenSUSE as well. So uh, so there you go. I, I'm not sure we've helped too much, <laughs> uh, but at the very least, we've given you some graphical tools that you can yeah. use to do these things. And the other thing is to change um, ownership and permissions, you don't need uh, these additional tools. If you simply right-click on a file uh, and go to Properties, it should give you a tab within the file properties that is labeled permissions. And there you can change the owner. You can change the permissions of what the owner can do. Um, you can change the owner if you are administrator. Um, yeah. And you can change the permissions as to what the owner can do, what members of a group can do and what anyone else can do, whether that's labeled everyone else or whether that's others or that's usually how you can change the permission on a file but yeah i'm I'm still trying to ponder why the administrator can do uh couldn't change permissions. so it sounds like it was it was it was a fun learning curve <laughs> yeah exactly and i suspect that if you had done the the uh setting of the others 
or everyone else setting before changing the ownership of the directories, I think that would have solved your problem. Um, and again, if anyone from our audience has uh, experience with this, any of our minions, please write in and give us your opinions or your tips or your tricks on file ownership. And yeah, I do. I did want to uh, say, didn't he say he installed uh, Linux Mint? Then he added that disk. Maybe if he had just uh, let uh, uh, Linux Mint um, add that disk at the time of installation, it would have set the permissions correctly. That's possible. Uh, yeah. But again, it depends on the format of the document. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Okay, so our next email comes from Nancy, who wrote about Microsoft making Linux more popular. She writes, in June of this year, Microsoft is ending the MC... SAMCSC track by discontinuing those exams. They are moving to what they call a role-based certification, all of which pertain to their cloud services, Azure, Office 365, etc. Any certifications held at that time will still be active for two years till June of 2022, at which point they will become inactive. Even though Microsoft is not going to offer new MCSAMCSE certifications, they will be employers who still value them beyond 2022. Who knows? However, she's right to read on. Additionally, some of the inst installers for some of the latest systems absolutely must reach out to Microsoft for the rest of the installation. Many DoD environments prohibit Internet contact under administrative credentials, which nobody should be doing anyway. But this will prevent those environments from maintaining an, um, an installer for many of those programs. As this becomes the norm for Microsoft products, those environments will be moving to Linux systems for their backbone operations. They'll have to because in some of, the, of our environments, we don't have Internet access. We have to do all of our installations using SneakerNet. Uh, this isn't going to hurt Microsoft any. The DoD is really only about 7% of their customer base, but it is going to create a huge demand for Linux administrators in defense operations. These positions will require security clearance, but as Microsoft moves to the cloud-exclusive business model, they will uh, also be, be private sector enterprises that will see Linux as the best alterna uh, alternative. Nancy, wow! Um, so just so people know what we're talking about, the MCSA and MCSE were certifications. Uh, I can't remember to say Microsoft. Uh, certified Systems Administrator, and I think the MCSE mm -hmm. was Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, you had to take these tests to get these credentials, saying you know how to work their prod, uh, their um, their products, or you know, I, I never took one of them. I, I've heard people studying and paying lots of money to be able to pass these. Yes. Um, so. I know why they want they want everything moved to the cloud, you know, the Azure, Office 365, et cetera, et cetera. But um, and she has a point. 
we really don't want our DOD environments <laughs> reaching out into the internet with uh, administrative credentials. That would not be good. But I, I, I kind of saw this coming because you know now Microsoft says Windows 10 uh, or Windows they're doing Windows as a service. They're uh, they they want their products um, cloud based because that's where the money is for them. Yeah. You know, so because they're competing against Amazon. Microsoft, of course, and then uh, there's another one, another big one, or oh, IBM, you know, because they acquired Red Hat, and, you know. So I think um, she has a point, but I don't know. I, I, I'm sure they have thought about this, and there's got to be a way or to, you know, install these services for these big governments and businesses. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think she's right. You use Linux and as Microsoft, <laughs> yeah, is uh adopting more and more Linux subsystems and Linux tools and making things available as open source in order for them to become more Linux compatible. I see it going more and more the way of Linux at at Microsoft and eventually I've I've made the prediction before that there will be a Microsoft distribution of Linux. Maybe not a desktop distribution, but a distribution nonetheless. And it may be um, much along the lines of uh, what Intel has done for their uh, clear Linux, which is something that works with their systems and works well with their systems, but it's essentially a, uh, a Linux distribution. And so eventually there's going to be a in my opinion, a Microsoft distribution of Linux available, and it will solve a lot of these problems that that uh, Nancy has outlined. So, yeah, I I see it coming too. All right. Okay, our next email is from Michael, who says he's unable to subscribe to the DistroWatch podcast. Hi, Larry and Bill. I can't seem to be able to subscribe to the DistroWatch podcast with Rhythmbox. I get a network error when I try. I got the following address from the DistroWatch site, distrowatch.com slash news slash augcast.xml, which is the feed uh, URL. And this is from Michael in West Yorkshire, UK. Michael, I think it may be that DistroWatch just happened to have a problem with that file at the time you were trying to subscribe to it. I was able to go into Rhythmbox and subscribe to that successfully. So if you still have problems, give it a try again. And if you still have problems, let us know. All right. Our next email comes from Daniel, who asks about Gpotter and Orca. I would like to make a OPML file of all of my subscribed podcasts, but I don't know how to get to G Potter's menus with the keyboard. How is it done? Hmm. Mm. I don't use G Potter. <laughs> yeah, I think G Potter is one of those programs that uh, does not support blind users very well. And so there may be some problems with the actual shortcuts and so on. However, having said that, I sent. Uh, I sent to Daniel a link to a YouTube video from our friend from the Sonar Linux project, Jonathan Nato. Uh, he recorded this video a few years ago, but it's specifically on setting up G Potter using Orca. So hopefully that 
works for him. And uh, again, if you still have some problems, let us know, Daniel, but that should take care of things for you. Okay, uh, our next email is from Ken, who has had a great experience with the Mint forums. Larry, Bill, at the last update of my computer with Mint 18.3, there was a serious error that caused the computer to crash and not to boot. I presumed that it was a bootloader problem and wrestled it off and on for a week or two, trying to figure out how to fix the bootloader. Then I decided to go to the Mint forum, giving them my setup and problem. Once I told them that a utility called IntraMFS, that's I-N-T-R-A-M-F-S, was appearing after the failed boot, a person, DM10 was their name, came back to me saying that it wasn't the bootloader, but a fouled up file system, which I suppose was caused by the system update failure. After fixing the file system with sudo fsk-y slash dev slash SDA1, I'm uh, back up and running thanks to the forum. I would never have figured it out by myself. The whole point is to remind folks out in Linux land that the forum for your distro can be a valuable resource in maintaining and operating your system. This isn't the first time that I have received help from the Mint forum. Of course, I appreciate all the help from Going Linux over the years. Ken, KB4XT. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, he—that's what forums are for. To, <laughs> there's always somebody that's had the same thing happen yep. to them. So. Yeah, exactly. And oftentimes the the solution is pretty straightforward, and sometimes, as it did in Ken's case, requires the use of the terminal. But hey, you shouldn't shy away from the terminal. Sometimes that's a quicker and easier way to take care of things like this. That was a one-line fix. <laughs> so exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I will say uh, the Linux Mint forums, and I found also the MX Linux forums are are some of the friendliest uh, uh, ones out there. So, you know, they all they both have uh, you know really helpful people. So, yeah, always uh, go to the forums if <laughs> when you're having problems because there's always somebody that's either can help tell you how to fix it or have experienced it and and uh, know how to get it back up and running. So. Yeah, and I think the Ubuntu forums. Oh yeah, Ubuntu, Ubuntu forums, forums are very friendly too. And even OMG Ubuntu, they have uh, you know forums and that sort of thing so that that helps as well. So if you're on any Ubuntu-based distribution, Linux Mint included, you'll often find answers to problems there, and they're pretty friendly there too. Now I will. Uh, there's another resource. It's not. It's in wiki form, and I know it's mm-hmm. going to sound weird, but I've actually uh, found a fix to a problem on the Arch Linux wiki. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. <laughs> Those guys. I mean, sometimes when you just can't find, when Google's not your friend, uh, I found the Endeavor. Uh, they their uh, wiki is really uh, really good. It won't fix everything, of course. I mean, I've broken the system before, but I find that you know if <clears throat> you can't find it, it doesn't hurt just to take a quick pe- uh, peek at the the Arch uh, wiki, just because sometimes it might give you a, a different avenue to explore. Yep, absolutely. So Danny wrote us uh, with a question about Larry's Ubuntu Mate books. He said, how much different are your uh, Ubuntu Mate books in the newest edition? 
I have your books on Kindle and got them last year, I think. And how did you get 2004 if it is not out yet? Well, Larry has a secret route right into uh, Ubuntu Mate. <laughs> no, sir. No. Um, <laughs> I think uh, there's uh, a link that you can download the daily uh, – what they call the daily build. Is that what you're running? Yeah. Yeah, all of the Ubuntu uh, distribution or Ubuntu um, official distributions make all of their daily builds that they're working on for the upcoming release available uh, publicly. As do you know, it's open source, right? Everybody does that. So I just uh, go in there and download the latest daily build and build my examples from there. And so, yeah, the the latest versions of my books have been updated for 20.04. And uh, the the one that is for switchers from Mac OS and from Windows is available now with the updates for 20.04. And the one that is more in-depth that goes into the applications in a little bit more in-depth, uh, Ubuntu Mate and its applications, or using Ubuntu Mate and its applications is the full title. Uh, that won't be available until... After the beginning of April, it'll be available before 2004 comes out, but I'm waiting to see if a couple of features actually make it into the release before I release that that book, and I want to keep it um, as up-to-date as possible. So that's why you run dailies? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. uh, it's just to double-check to see if there's one particular feature that allows you to change the themes to something other than green. <laughs> um, you know, the well, you don't like themes. the green? No, gr green is great, but there's a colors feature that is available as a PPA, but they're uh, intending to put it within the, uh, actually within uh, Ubuntu Welcome, uh, Ubuntu Mate Welcome. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, to select the color you want your... Uh, your ambient or radiance theme to be, uh, and including the dark themes uh, with a number of different colors available. Uh, and if the, uh, I've got basically two versions of that chapter, one describing how to set up the PPA and the other one, how to do it from the uh, Ubuntu Mate Welcome. And uh, depending on whether it makes it in or not uh, is what will go into the, uh, it go into the book. So, <laughs> To answer your question, Daniel, about what the difference is, um, there is some difference because there are new features in 20.04 that weren't available in 18.04, uh, the previous LTS version of Ubuntu Mate. So I've incorporated those additional features. I've added a few additional comments about some of the applications and of course, some of the applications have gotten replaced as well. So in 18.04, the video playing application was VLC that was installed by default. And now it's something called Celluloid. So I've changed that chapter to describe Celluloid and how that works. So those are the main differences. Uh, I would suggest that if you're running 18.04, uh, there's no real need to update the I'll let the book and go out and buy a new version. I don't want to discourage you from doing that if you want to go ahead and do that, but I don't really see any need if you're not running 20.04. And if you are intending to run 20.04 and you get some value out of 
the documentation that's provided in books like this, yeah, it's definitely got some value for folks looking for the latest features and how to use them and that sort of thing. So there you go. That's really the difference. It's just been updated for what is in the current distribution or the upcoming current distribution in April. Hey, Larry, did, did have you looked at um, if they're going to be off? I heard they're going to be offering the ZFS system as a fully supported uh operating uh, a file system. Have you looked at that? I have not, so I can't really comment. I've seen in the Slack channels for Ubuntu Mate developers some uh. conversations around that, but I haven't really been following it, so I can't really comment on that. And that's not part of the book. It doesn't go into that level of detail. File system formats and things like that, so it's uh. it's more for newer users. I still, I still want to try it. Uh, my itch to try that uh, ZFS. Uh, <laughs> I've heard some of them talking about it on some other podcasts, and it's like, ooh, I really want to try that. But anyway, it really depends. I think uh, whether or not it is completely stable enough for a distribution like Ubuntu to include it. That'll determine whether or not it's available. I think more than anything else. All right. Let's see here. We have uh, Carlos asking about compatibility of his printer fax scanner. We haven't had printer questions in a while. My main laptop is an HP Pavilion G6 2112HE notebook, 64-bit, 4 gigabytes of uh, RAM, and Windows 7. So it's a little older system. He says... I tested the live version of Linux Lite, which seemed to be faster. My only concern or problem is making sure my printer and scanner fully function properly. I did notice while testing the live version of Linux Lite, my printer's driver for Epson Workforce 845 was recognized, but I'm having a hard time configuring and testing the scanner since I have an all-in-one printer, scanner, fax, copier. Can you possibly help me with this issue? I really want to install Linux on my main laptop, but have to make sure this issue is resolved first. Would Ubuntu Mate work out of the box where I wouldn't have such a hard time installing my printer slash scanner? I will also test Ubuntu Mate to compare which one is more stable. I'm looking forward to hearing back from you soon. Best regards, Carlos. And so Carlos and I went back and forth uh, I got a lot more detail on what he was doing around this scanner. I provided him a couple of links, which we'll include in the show notes, uh, showing him that the Epson Workforce 845 driver is included by default in the Linux kernel, so it should be completely supported from a printer perspective. Uh, scanners, oftentimes even with the built-in scanners, sometimes scanner support is separate from printer support, so I looked on the uh, scanner Linux compatibility, and it shows the Epson Workforce 845 is fully Linux compatible as well. All of the functions should work just fine. So we went back and forth on determining how he was trying to set up the scanner, and he was looking for Epson drivers and all kinds of things, which of course uh, you don't really need because it's all uh, automatically installed. On Linux, you don't really need to install separate uh, drivers when it's supported out of the box. So once we got past that, I determined that it might be as simple as Carlos not understanding 
completely what the um, uh, how to use the scanner. So Carlos did write back. Why don't you go ahead and uh, read that, and then I'll describe what the what I suggested to Carlos for learning about how to use the scanner. Sure. Uh, Carlos wrote, I have just now tested the scanner and was not successful. First, I turned on the printer, then went to the printers, configure printers. My printer was added already, Epson uh, Workforce 845, and, and reads... Uh, to connect it to localhost. Next, I clicked on the program Simple Scan and clicked on the Scan button, and it said Fail to Scan. No scanners available. Please connect a scanner. I'm not sure if there are some hidden settings I need to change or or, or not. Uh, what do you suggest? Uh, how do I correct this problem? Right. And so I suggested that uh, if Carlos wanted some documentation on how to use simple scan that with simple scan open he press the f1 key on his keyboard and that will open up the help text for uh simple scan including you know graphical examples and things like that and what it says in there about selecting a scanner and i realized that um, he was trying to do a scan without selecting the scanner first so essentially it tells you in the documentation that you need to select the di the device from the document menu and then go to preferences and it says local scanners are automatically detected each time document scanner starts and each time you plug in a USB scanner if you connect a network scanner which i suspect is what we have here mm -hmm. uh, you will need to restart document scanner for the scanner to be detected so wow. uh yeah so you want to make sure that you're connected uh, either plugged in or through the network uh, and then start document scanner and it should automatically detect your scanner. And if not, you go into the document preferences menu and you should be able to select your scanner there. And then everything else you were doing, Carlos, was absolutely correct. Um, one of the things that I've noticed with Linux and on Mac as well, uh, because they don't know whether they use simple scan or they use a, a Mac version of the scanning tool, but it is independent of the setup for the printer. And typically you don't need to use the scan button that's on the front of the scanner. You just start the scan from the simple scan application and it goes and finds your scanner you tell it whether or not you want to use the flatbed or the automatic feed if you happen to have a scanner with one of those. And it will figure out how to get the thing started and it will just start the scan for you automatically. So it's even easier than using it under Windows. You don't need to worry about that button that's on the front of your scanner. All right. Uh, just want to also let you know later this next email. This mm -hmm. guy has sent this exact same thing to destination Linux and everything about this. Oh yeah. 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 I, I noticed that, but maybe we've got a little different perspective on things. So let's read it. Okay. Albert, uh, our next email comes from Albert who asked about running games on his HP Z book G3. He said, hi guys. Thanks for the podcast. I love the topics on here. I need help. I just bought an HP ZBook G3. It has an Intel Core i7-6700HQ with Intel 
HD graphics uh, 530, 16 gigabytes of DD4 RAM, and uh, 500 gigabytes spinning Western Digital uh, drive. I bought it from a friend's company for 20 bucks. I just installed a crucial 500 gigabyte SSD for $66 and also installed Zorin OS free, uh, the free version with Steam. I think that the next version of Zorin I will, will pay for since I like it so much. My question is, is there any way to make my gaming experience better? I'm a broke gamer. LOL. <laughs> Should I get a discrete card like an NVIDIA Quadro M100 uh, 1000M or an M2000M, or should I buy a eGPU box? And which one to get? Has anyone worked with uh, those on Windows or Linux? I have an RX 480 4GB I could throw into a eGPU box if I went that route. I can load most of all the games I want to play using Proton, but running on very low settings. Here are some of the games I need to play. Uh, Gas, uh, Extreme Guzzlers, uh, Need for Speed Shift, uh, Doom, Dirt Rally, Axis, Footfall 2019, Smashing the Battle, House Slipper, and Tabletop Racing. Any thoughts or suggestions is very much. Any thoughts or suggestions is very uh, much appreciated. I want to use the amazing HPZ book since it has a great hardware in it. Once again, thanks for the show. Thank, thank you, A Train. First off, that's a great price for that computer. <laughs> for oh 20 yeah, bucks. twenty bucks. I'm looking at uh, the you know the specs and. Uh, you say you can play some on, on uh, low settings, and you said that you're also a pro gamer. And uh, as a as uh, the, the resident gamer on this podcast, instead of spending a bunch of money on the eGPU box, uh, because uh, I believe uh, you know you're going to be limited to uh, the, the connection that you probably has. I think that one has a Thunderbolt port. Um, I would kind of stay away from the Quattros because the Quattros aren't really gaming cards. They're more of um, for design uh, designers, uh, you know, for mm-hmm. like AutoCADs. Right. So I, I so I don't know um, if you should spend any money on those. Uh, if you do want to use an e, uh, eGPU, um, I would just go ahead and throw the RX 480 in there and just use that. And, and and then just I would save up uh, my money that you know and just spend as little money as you can right now, to, and just use what you have and maybe pick up one of those uh, boxes. I mean, they different price ranges, and I would just save up money and and build a a computer because this is a this is a laptop. Uh, and you know, unless you want to spend like eighteen hundred bucks on like an Alienware, um, I would just kind of wait and put my money aside until I could, you know, build what I wanted and and just spend as little money as I could on on this um, yep. on this setup. That's that's kind of what I'm thinking, but I would definitely not, you know, dump a lot of money in, into it. Um, 
but I'd use what I have and um, and it's kind of save up from some um, better hardware because you like I said you're going to be limited um, by the, the uh, port that you're using to connect the uh, the eGPU so, right yeah yep in general uh, laptops are not recommended for gaming unless they're specifically built for gaming and even at that you can get better performance from something that's in a case so uh, another thing uh, just two other things i have a gaming um uh laptop and it's made by alienware and it and uh it really cranks out the heat so you know the um the problem with these uh, laptops uh the even the gaming ones is that uh the thermals are not as as good as maybe a desktop and uh so i would i would suggest you know if you're going to be a, doing a lot more gaming and you want some really high frame rates and etc cetera, etc cetera, you know go with a um a desktop and uh yeah i would just kind of i would just use it when I mean, you can't beat the price i mean you've got like what 88 bucks in uh, or 86 dollars in the whole system <laughs> so yeah I, so you know even if you picked up an eGPU uh and you got a little life out of it with your existing RX40 uh or 480 card I I think that's the best uh, route that you should take yeah. but you know, yeah for the short term anyway yeah for the short term yeah. and just save your money yep sounds good okay let's move on this is a long one from Richard who provided us this feedback he said hi guys i'm an occasional listener to your podcast and heard the question and the discussion reorca and Manjaro and how to contact Manjaro. Manjaro has a very helpful forum easily found at forum.manjaro.org. Guys, it's not exactly hidden away. I think you can even use one of those internet search thingies to find it. There is also a GitLab <laughs> group, I believe, so an IRC channel and other social media accounts. With regard to Orca and accessibility issues, there has been some discussion on the forums about this. You might wish to raise some of the issues for your visually impaired or blind users, as it may help in considering which Linux distros might be worth considering and which are likely to be inappropriate. Manjaro is not a consumer-oriented operating system, uh, and he's got that as a quote from the Learn More section on the uh, uh, manjaro.org website. I think this probably applies to most rolling distributions. One, Manjaro is a rolling distribution based on Arch. Updates are regular and with short intervals. Use of the terminal will be inevitable at some point. Two, whilst the stable branch is generally solid, there will be times when problems arise and some problem solving and help from the community through the forum will be required. If, for the sake of argument, we consider visually impaired or blind users as falling into two arbitrary I know categories, one, those who are using a distro as a tool to navigate their lives, then a rolling distro like Manjaro for a testing branch of other distros are likely to be frustrating at the least and possibly infuriating. These users would be better advised to stay with a very stable distro that offers maximum benefit and minimum maintenance to those visually impaired or blind users who are already computing enthusiasts who wish to push the envelope. These users may wish to help developers drive change in the stable LTS distros, and who knows, contribute to the rolling distro's ability to support visually impaired or blind users. 
I would say that the development teams are often very small. I am no expert in either computing or visual disability. Perhaps you could invite someone onto your podcast who is to help guide visually impaired or blind users through Linux. Thanks for the podcast. Interesting listening. Best wishes, Richard. All good points, Richard. Thanks for all of that. And so the bottom line for Orca on Manjaro, don't expect uh, it to work. (laughs) This is kind of what Richard is saying because Manjaro is a rolling distribution and it's more of a uh, testing sort of thing rather than it is a stable distribution that I think most uh, blind users would need in order to, as he puts it, run their lives. Uh, I found that kind of interesting. It says Manjaro is not a consumer-oriented operating system. Mm-hmm. Okay, that just kind of strikes me as interesting. But uh, I, yeah, I kind of agree with you. You should stay with um, if you're a blind user, you just and you use it to get things done. You know, the Ubuntu-based um, distros seem to offer some of the better support. Yep. So our next email comes from George, who wrote us about episodes 385 and 386. He's right, and he begins, uh, number 386, Brave Browser. Just say no. Brave's business model is to intercept and replace advertising with advertising Brave sales. The idea that users will put money into a Brave account to donate to sites uh, they like sounds good, but is not. it's just not going to happen. The tokens earned by viewing ads may be anonymized, but offer a path to tracking. Firefox has a real focus on privacy, and he gives a link that will be in the show notes. He has multi-account containers offer important privacy enhancements. So far, I, I know uh, Firefox only. Google has announced plans to restrict the number of malware and adware sites that can be blocked in Chromium or which Bra- on which Brave is based in Chrome. Uh, that will gut the uBlock origin system that works much like a custom host file. Google long ago blocked uh, users' ability to set their own protective host file in Android is now moving to do that in its web browsers uBlock or a host file doesn't block ads. They are an important and effective barrier to malware. And he writes, Max, I've been embedded in the Mac ecosystem a long time, so long I basically had to toss out three generations of perfectly good computers because Apple ceased providing security updates. Apple also uh, stops providing parts at five years and by building systems with proprietary parts that has been the only possible source other than scavenging dead Macs. Apple's latest T2 chip combines the SSD controller, UEFI, and encryption locking T2 systems entirely to Apple. Most of their Parts, logic board, solid-state drive, memory can't be scavenged, and there are there is no generic substitute. Likely, a T2 Mac will never run Linux, which has been a fallback to keep good computers in use when Apple withdraws support. And he says, in reference to 385, Paul, uh, should I be concerned about Linux Mint? I'm one of several followers of the shows on the Destination Linux network who communicate disagreement to Michael Turnall, 
who, in my opinion, has been making an ad hominem allegations that Linuxmen is insecure. Pushing back on Michael did not, unfortunately, result in his specifying exactly his objections to men's security, but here's what I gleaned from his, from his follow-up discussions with Ryan, a.k.a. Uh, Das Geek. Number one, Mint provides one and only one user profile for its version of Firefox. Looking into that, I was completely flummoxed by how what I think Michael was saying uh, amounts to a security weakness. Mint modifies Firefox to start at the Mint homepage and replaces Firefox default Google search with you, uh, Yahoo because Yahoo pays Mint. I do disagree with that. I'm a user of Mint, but as between Mint and Firefox, I think Firefox is more important and Mint shouldn't be intercepting Firefox revenue streams. As it stands, Mozilla is dependent on Google search revenue and likely would com collapse uh, without it. I'm hoping that, that much as Bill Gates rescued Apple back in the day, Google for antitrust reasons, uh, we'll see that Firefox survives. What I was unable to wrangle out of my research into Firefox user profiles is how Mint has created a security issue, perhaps by cloaking all of Mint's Firefox users in one profile, there's a security advantage, just couldn't find anything pro or con. Two, Mint blocks some user added PPAs. I think we can all uh, agree users who insert random PPAs fi found on the internet into their Linux systems are potentially opening a huge security hole. Mint makes doing that somewhat more difficult but hardly impossible. I view that as a security advantage, especially for new users, the kind who research newbie-friendly Linux distros and find Mint at the top of, of most of the lists. Ask Noah went off on time shift, as did Michael. Noah had obviously never used it, and and in his IT Pro persona, has a bunch of scripts to make backups. Time shift is amazing. It is available generally on Linux, not just Mint. I use it, tested its uh, restoration ability, and donated to support it. Praise to the Mint team for including it. Daniel problems uh, using no monitor. I've absolutely no idea if this could help, but there was a time when I was running Mac minis as headless servers that part of the trick was to install a video uh, out device so that the OS thought there was a monitor attached. Link to one of the uh, to one on Amazon and uh, links in the show notes. Uh, and then re oh, about Sea Monkey. Uh, thanks for the link. I was one of it was one of my favorite applications. The last time I updated a system and needed to install it, it's it seemed to fail, possibly because only 32-bit. Look forward to trying the 64-bit version. Happy Sea Monkey still swims. Well, as always, uh, George, thanks for all of the information. That's yeah. very helpful. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I know we had said something about Brave, and after looking at it, um, I 
pretty much just use Firefox. I do have to have Chromium, a Chromium-based uh, browser on my um, my laptop because sometimes I have to log into work from my house. Um, mm -hmm. But my daily driver has been um, uh, Firefox for a while now, and I'm pretty happy with it. It, it does everything I need to, but my company that I work for, uh, they require you to use uh, Chrome, or they don't even like uh, the new um, uh, Microsoft the Edge, the one that's based on Chromium. Yeah. So yeah, they want you to use Chrome. So they, they, Google's got them in their pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there are certain things that, uh, especially things from uh, Google that only work on Chrome or have only worked on Chrome. So you've been a little locked in there, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah. So brave. I don't know. Um, some people have some concerns. Some people find it very helpful. I don't know. It's, it's one of the ones that is available for you to use. Should you choose to use it? And um, I don't really use it on a regular basis either. So I can't really comment, but you uh, use Firefox. It's up. I use Firefox and Chrome, usually Chrome, but I use Firefox as a backup and as as a way of testing something to see if yeah. it works on things other than Chrome. Oh, cool. All right. Uh, our next email is from Anand, who wrote us about Linux on a MacBook Pro. Hi, Bill and Larry. My name is Anand, and I am from the Middle East. I am a regular listener to your podcast, which is very relaxed and has a cafe feel to it. But at the same time, very interesting and informative about Linux. This is on the last podcast of Linux on MacBooks. I recently got into Linux and I first experimented with it on my 2010 MacBook Pro. After numerous tries with Ubuntu, finally the OS I am head over heels in love with is Ubuntu Budgie. And it works seamlessly on my MacBook Pro. No problems at all. I believe Budgie DE desktop environment that is, is very slick and looks amazing on the MacBook Pro with dark themes. I tried Solus Budgie 2. It worked really well too, but I needed specific software which was available on Ubuntu and so hopped back to Ubuntu Budgie. Thought I should add to the discussion. Thanks again for all the knowledge sharing and perhaps keep sharing it. With regards, Anand. Well, thanks, Anand. I'm glad yeah. it's working for him. Bungie's kind of slick. Yeah, it's it's one of those that's I think you mentioned is designed to look like uh, the Mac operating system, yeah. right? It, it, it's yeah, it's very um, you can make them look very much like Mac. So our next uh, email comes from Alex, who wrote about our episode on switching from Mac OS. He said OS X is still my main system because I use Logic Pro to make music on a Hackintosh. I've been considering switching to take advantage of of the bang for the buck on the higher core count AMD CPUs. <laughs> okay, and okay. I wrote back to Alex and uh, sent him a link to some alternatives to Logic Pro for Linux. Oh. I don't know how good they are, how they compare, but uh, I just wanted to make sure that he was aware that there are some some alternatives out mm -hmm. there. So maybe he can continue to use Linux. Yeah. There we go. All right. Okay. We're uh, almost at the end of our emails here. This next one is from Paul, who asked about Chromebooks running Linux. Hi, guys. I've been using Windows for most of my life and recently, one to two years, have been using Macs for development. 
PHP, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, but would also like to expand into Python. I've heard Google mention you can dual boot Linux onto their Chromebooks, but haven't bought one to test yet. Was wondering if either of you have tested out working on a Chromebook with Linux. What attracts me to the Chromebook is the compact size and price point. Do you have a recommendation on what specs to look for the Chromebook and with what Linux distros to use? Or maybe you have an alternative machine to suggest. I've enjoyed the podcast for a couple of years now and have dual booted my wife's laptop to use Mint for her continuing surfing the web and emailing thanks to tips and suggestions from here. Cheers, Paul, web developer and designer. Okay, so Paul, uh, most of the newer Chromebooks you can install Linux after stripping off Chrome or running it in parallel with Chrome. Not exactly a dual boot, but similar sort of thing. I would suggest that you go with a newer version of a Chromebook if you decide to go that route. One that would have comparable specs to an equivalent non-Chromebook or Windows or Linux uh, operating system-based hardware. Uh, You can find them easily out there. Some Toshibas come to mind and so on. The ones that I have heard uh, most problems with are the Samsungs. Uh, Not that they're significant problems, but that might be something you'd want to stay away from. I'm not sure. But there are plenty of them out there, and they are definitely less expensive. So when you're looking at the specs, I can't give you specific specs to look for, but when you're looking at the specs, compare the specifications with those that you might find on Dell or Linux 76 or Entroware computers and make sure that you've got similar sort of specifications and hardware. Uh, I think... Like I said, most Chromebooks these days are capable of running Linux without too much trouble. I I check around and search for anyone installing Linux on the Chromebook you might be interested in and just check to make sure they didn't run into any major problems in the installation that you couldn't get yourself out of in the way of problems. One other point on the Chromebooks is uh, bear in mind that the keyboard you get on a Chromebook is not going to be the same as the keyboard you get on a system built for Mac or built for Windows or built for Linux. Uh, You won't have certain keys on the keyboard because Chrome does things differently. And so you may be looking for those keys. For example, the meta key or the Windows key or the, you know... Backspace. uh, yeah, backspace is another big key that that you can't find. So uh, just just be careful. Go and try them out, uh, and make sure that you can find workarounds for those keys as well. Uh, just less to do with the specs of the computer and more to do with the you know the keyboard. There is a shortcut to make the. I think it's like Alt and then the back arrow. For some reason, you don't have a delete key. We use Chromebooks. Uh, when we uh, onboard new employees and one of them was like, where's the backspace key? And I had to actually just Google it because I couldn't figure out how to <laughs> backspace that thing. But uh, the uh, my my suggestion, and you're going to laugh, I would say you look for a uh, uh, 
an IBM ThinkPad. Great, uh, great um, keyboard, and probably have a little bit um, uh, higher specs. And one of the things about the Chromebooks I've always noticed is they have really tiny SSD drives, and they're not. And a lot of times they're not very fast. But that's just you know something to think about. Yeah, I've seen some with uh, larger SSD drives, so they've gotten a little bit bigger with that. Oh, but you're right. Okay. Typically, they are lower spec, and even if you get Linux installed on them, they're going to run Linux slower than mm -hmm. equivalent hardware uh, designed for Windows or designed for Linux. So just be aware that it might not give you the performance you expect, even if it's an i5 processor. Or something like that. Yeah. So just just be careful. Uh, yeah. There's a reason why they're less expensive. And part of that has to do with the fact that they use less expensive parts. And less expensive when you're talking about processors and RAM and so on typically means performs less well. <laughs> All right. Our next email is a, a kind of a sad one. Troy wrote us about Mark Greaves, the founder of uh, Peppermint OS and lead developer. He writes, hi, guys. Uh, I haven't heard anything about it on the show recently, so I'm not sure if you've heard, but Mark Greaves passed away in January, and he leaves a link to the forum in Peppermint OS, uh, Troy, a.k.a. Uh, Jack Death. And uh, yeah, we had I had heard about it uh, when it was announced, but it was it hit us right between uh, when we were recording and we had a week off. But yep. yeah, it was I was very sad to hear about uh, uh, Mark passing away. I, I, he leaves, uh, I think they said, a wife and some children. So uh, our thoughts go out to him. And uh, yeah, they, I know they're trying they're trying to find someone to kind of. Uh, to help keep the project going. So if you know anybody interested, you know, go over to the forums and, uh, you know, see if uh, you can help them out. Yep. Forum.peppermintos.com. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, that's it. That's our last email. Our next episode, if it's out in time, will be the Linux Spotlight interview. The audio version, we'll put that out on the feed. And, uh, that will be our next episode. So no surprises this time, unless it's not available or ready. So then we'll, then, then it'll be a surprise. It'll be a surprise. <laughs> and no extra charge. Uh, until then, you can go to our website at goinglinks.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast community on community.goinglinux.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. Music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.